This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mogul, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It is no accident that so much of our intellectual activity is invested in thinking about history. It's also no accident that we have so many conversations with historians because they are often those who in the academy are dealing with the most interesting ideas, not only in retrospect, but in terms of the contemporary meaning of these things. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Thomas Kidd. Thomas S. Kidd is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, where he also serves as Senior Fellow at the Institute for Studies of Religion. He is the author of several very well-reviewed and respected academic works in American history, starting with The Protestant Interest, New England After Puritanism, published in 2004 by Yale University Press, and his most recent work, Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, published just in recent days by Basic Books. Professor Kidd, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you for having me on. You know, I have to begin with one of the biggest questions in terms of American religious history, or perhaps even American history. Are we right when we talk about what we often call the Great Awakening? Are we actually talking about something real, or is this something that historians have invented? Well, that's a controversy that really emerged in the 1980s. Until that point, I think most historians have just assumed that the Great Awakening was a critical event, at least in American religious history, if not American history generally. But then a Yale historian named John Butler said that the uh, Great Awakening had been invented by uh, later Christian historians and that Great Awakening really wasn't uh, all that great. In fact, he said it basically didn't exist. Uh, and I think that that was uh, helpful about the discussion about what what do we really mean by the Great Awakening, but I also think it was uh, greatly exaggerated by him because, because even at the time, in the 1740s, people knew that something incredible and unprecedented was happening in terms of revivals happening all over the American colonies and also in uh, Britain, Scotland, Wales, and the continent. Well, I think it's very helpful you point out that it was a transnational, if not international, kind of experience. And uh, I think you also point right to the issue, and that is that the people, even at the time, felt that something was happening. And uh, we're talking here especially about those uh, events that took place between the years of 1740 and 1743. Why do we talk about it in terms of an awakening? What, what, What was awakened? Well, you know, that is a, a phrase that they would use at the time, but, but they would say there is a great awakening happening in Boston or some, something like that. And I, I think we can understand that they didn't immediately realize, oh, this is the great awakening. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that is a historical kind of term. But what I think was uh, new and unprecedented and what was awakened was the kind of, oh, I think especially in New England, uh, that, that, the original faith of the Puritan colonists had probably become a little more uh, distracted or uh, you know, limited in its intensity of those of those founding pioneers who had come here for uh, to preserve their faith, to be able to practice their faith and freedom. Now you're getting into say the third and fourth generations, and and uh, the level of religious commitment was mixed. And I think that especially when the revivalist George Whitfield arrived uh, beginning in 1739 uh, to America, uh, he brought a new passion and intensity to the preaching of the gospel, the laser focus on the message that people needed to be born again. Uh, and I think it brought a, a kind of fervency and simplicity to the preaching of the gospel that 
uh, brought people out of this sort of complacency that they just attended church and sort of tried to live, you know, virtuous lives and this sort of thing. That there was that there was something else to Christianity. In fact, the center of the Christian faith, which was the conversion experience, and that's what helped to awaken America. Well, let's get technical for just a moment. Uh, in terms of the inherited understanding of the of the Great Awakening and of uh, especially Christianity in the colonies during this period. It's often said that the Great Awakening came out of, well, a basic understanding of those churches as belonging to either new lights or, or old lights, uh, with the, the new lights being basically those who, who led the Great Awakening and, and encouraged and supported the Great Awakening. But you're suggesting that there really ought to be at least a threefold understanding, as I, as I understand your presentation of the Great Awakening and of this period, between new lights and old lights, and then perhaps on the, on the far left, some rather radical evangelicals. Could you explain that? That's right. I, I think it's better seen as a kind of continuum of, of opinion. I mean, it's easier to talk about the anti-revivalists, or, the, or what we call the old lights, the people who just thought that the revivals were... Uh, religious frenzy, and they were leading to really no good at all. But then among the evangelicals, there was a real range of opinion about what the uh, awakening should lead to, uh, what their their character should be. Uh, And among the moderate evangelicals, there was certainly a commitment to uh, uh, focus on the the experience of the new birth and, and preaching, um, and, uh, you know, they were glad for Whitfield's arrival in general. But they were concerned about some of the, what you'd call, leveling effects of, of the revivals. I mean, the, the revivals gave a lot of people new ideas about who might be able to speak in church, uh, new uh, theological developments, uh, attacking, for instance, the, the established state churches, um, you know, suggesting that some of the established state ministers might not even be converted themselves. And this more radical movement is where the uh, the new separate Baptist uh, movement comes from, beginning in, uh, in New England, which is where um, much of the uh, American Baptist uh, tradition comes from. I mean, Baptists have been there in the colonies before the Great Awakening, but the Baptist movement is so energized uh, by the Great Awakening, that uh, it's it's effectively a whole new uh, movement, and so there's there's some real uh, dis- disagreement among evangelicals that's as strident as the difference between evangelicals and the anti-revivalists. Well, I want to trace that out just a bit with you, but before leaving this this kind of understanding of a continuum, I, I think it's probably instructive for us to consider those who were on the more radical fringe. What was it about the more radical revivalists? That, that concerned uh, some of the more uh, established churchmen? Well, you know, in, in colonial American religion in general before the Great Awakening, I mean, you, the, you have pretty formal religious meetings where you would have uh, the pastor sometimes giving as long as two-hour sermons, uh, and the pastor you know, was very much, the preaching was very much the, the center of attention. And in these revival meetings, uh, it, to, to critics, it just seemed like sometimes chaos. I mean, different people able to speak in the, in the meetings, uh, uneducated men, uh, you know, sometimes uh, women, African-Americans, slaves, Native Americans, who are able to testify about their, uh, their experience of the Lord. And uh, th- this just seemed uh, disconcerting to uh, a lot of people to have this kind of multiplicity of, of voices in the church. But 
With regard to the Baptist movement in particular, I mean, you have uh, largely uh, uneducated men, people like like Isaac Bacchus, who had no college education, uh, asserting their right to uh, to preach, and then theological uh, novelty, as it would seem to Congregationalists or Anglicans, in the sense that they refused to baptize infants uh, anymore. So there were theological uh, novelties, but there were also the w- novelties in the way that church life was being practiced, and it seemed very dangerous to a lot of the critics of the Great Awakening. You know, I think looking back, as I especially read your book, The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, I look at the debates that were very much current at that time, and it seems to me we are still in many of those still, those same debates. We are, I think, and I think that if you look at my book, I think you see some of the debates that are resonant in uh, the, the difference between charismatic and non-charismatic evangelicals, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in, in uh, church life, uh, you, you know, the, the way that some, uh, you know, church meetings will be very, very emotional uh, and, and drawn out, and some are very orderly and, and, and staid even. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, for me as, as a Baptist, we, you know, we on one hand, we have to you know remember that church cannot you know go on for you know year after year after year and just sheer chaos. But at the same time, uh, you know there's there was a very important development that came out of this kind of radical uh, fringe of the evangelical movement, which was the belief that, that uh, baptism is for believers, and also that uh, just having uh, a credentialed education is not necessarily enough to make someone a good preacher. Well, I certainly join you in that Baptist understanding, and, and at the same time, looking at, at what you've produced in terms of research, and some have characterized your approach as kind of post-revisionist. If, if uh, Butler and others of, uh, of his particular worldview are the revisionists, then you're coming along and, and revising the revisionists. But when you talk about the, the issues there, it sounds very much like some of the, the very contemporary debates over low church and high church models of, uh, of evangelicalism. Uh, debates in evangelicalism about the relative importance of education, uh, and of course, even of creeds and confessions uh, as uh, sometimes uh, put over against experience and enthusiasm. So we are right where evangelical Christianity began. And in one of your essays, you wrote this, the evangelical movement in America had been born, speaking of the Great Awakening, and once born rhetorical protests could not stop it. The more compelling question was, what kind of movement would evangelical Christianity become? So you're arguing that that question was already front and center in, in terms of the 1740s. Oh, I think that's right. And, and I think that when you look at uh, Jonathan Edwards, who I think is, you know, along with, with almost all students of the Great Awakening, is really the great theologian of, of the Awakening. He is, among other things, I think, a, a great theologian of emotion and the emotional uh, experience in the life of a believer. And, and you think of Edwards as a, as a kind of head guy, uh, all intellect and, and uh, you know, rational, sober preaching. But when you look at religious affections, uh, one of his most famous writings, he, he talks about the proper role for emotion uh, in the life of a believer, the life of the church. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I admire uh, Edwards so much is that here's this deeply, deeply learned man about uh, the history of theology and doctrine and so forth, and yet he knew that there was a place for uh, an emotional reaction, especially to the grace of God for sinners, Uh, and that if you don't have some kind of emotional reaction to that, you probably haven't gotten the gospel. 
Uh, and so I think that that's a kind of perennial debate that we have to have as as Christians is the, the tension between head and heart uh, level Christianity. Help us to draw some lines of connection then. So if we go back to the, to the mid-18th century with what we call the Great Awakening, and then we come to the early decades of the 21st century, and we look at contemporary evangelicalism, as an historian, what, what would you suggest are the lines of continuity there, and, and where perhaps should we note some discontinuity as well? Well, I think that one of the concerns that I know you have and I have too is that there has been a, a real dumbing down of evangelical uh, theology. I mean, I referred to Isaac Backus as an uneducated man, uh, but he is deeply learned in theology, uh, and and of course they're they're familiar with the, the great creeds of the faith and and uh, the you know great uh, doctrines that Christians had had long believed, and certainly since the Reformation. Um, so I think that your average evangelical believer, though even uh, among the radicals, even among the radicals who are having very intense emotional, spiritual experiences in the revivals, you would also see a, a level of theological sophistication uh, that I think would put uh, lots and lots of lay people and maybe even some ministers to shame uh, today in the evangelical movement. And And of course, I think there's a discontinuity in the sense that, uh, you know, so much of evangelical Christianity today tends to be focused on the therapeutic and, and sort of coping with life and this sort of thing. And I think, you know, Christianity should help us cope with life. <laughs> that's a good, you know, that's a good thing. But I think to the extent that uh, theology and, and uh, the, the, the doctrines of the great doctrines of the church has been decentered in evangelicalism, I think that that would be a turn away from what 18th century evangelicalism was like. Well, it seems to me in your work you also offer some rather helpful, I wouldn't say instructions because you're writing as an historian, but nonetheless some uh, some very helpful reminders at least of how during this period some of the more extreme uh, demonstrations of uh, uh, of the Great Awakening as undertaken by the, the more radical evangelicals, that they were brought into some check. And in terms of the evangelicalism that, that would have survived the Great Awakening into the later 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, it, it, it had had to to settle some of these issues. It had to deal with some of these excesses. Well, that's right, and I think you have a, a sort of uh, cyclical process where, for instance, the separate Baptists, uh, you know, in, in their early years, I think very much look like the kind of things that you would see in Pentecostal churches today of just intense spiritual experiences and uh, visions and healings and things like this uh, that were being... Uh, reported, but within say 30 or 40 years, they had become uh, much more uh, you know, stable, I guess you might say, um, and they were beginning to put more of an emphasis on education. Founding of, of uh, the College of, of Rhode Island, which becomes Brown University, is in the 1760s for the training of Baptist pastors, which some said, "Oh, we don't, you know, we don't need no education, <laughs> right? We're Baptist," and uh, you know, some, some people disparage that, but. Uh, the, the Baptist movement started to become uh, more, uh, you know, rational, stable, um, and then out of that becomes uh, sort of new uh, radical fringe movements that that want to, uh, in their view, sort of re-energize the passion of gospel preaching and the the experiences with God, outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival. And so, I think that there's a kind of waxing and waning of that throughout evangelical. Uh, history, and I suppose in a way that continues through today. 
Now, your first scholarly book was entitled The Protestant Interest, New England After Puritanism, published by Yale University Press in 2004. I really found that book particularly fascinating because I don't know of any other similar monograph uh, or, or book that has dealt with that period the way you do. But in that book, you really kind of set the stage for what came before the Great Awakening. Yeah, I do. I think that after the Glorious Revolution, which comes to America in 1689, uh, among other things, this leads to uh, 50 years and more of imperial war between Britain and France, and uh, the American colonists saw this as as a great struggle between uh, uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. And by the 1720s and 30s, uh, for because of the conditions of war, because of ongoing conflict with Native Americans, because of feelings of uh, fear about theological innovation and, and what they would call liberalism at the time, um, they had a strong sense that their culture was really uh, becoming decayed and, and uh, at risk of, of becoming uh, really ungodly. And, and this is the, the context in which pastors begin to call on uh, lay people to pray for revival, to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival. And uh, starting in the mid-1730s, they get answers to their prayer. Uh, so it is born out of a, the Great Awakening is born out of a spirit of uh, a de- desperate sense of cultural crisis. Your work has been rather thoroughly reviewed uh, among secular scholars. You have received academic honors such as a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. Uh, your work is rather well known, published especially by major American university presses. How do secular historians grapple with this now? As they look at America, say, well, in our time, in the 21st century, when they look back to the periods that you cover most intensely in terms of colonial and revolutionary America, when they look at something like the Great Awakening, what do they see or what do they think they see? Well, I think that there was a, a an older uh, version of, of the study of the Great Awakening, say the 1960s and 70s, that would have seen it as uh, you know, something about some kind of psychosis or, you know, maybe a guilt out of rising uh, capitalism or something like that. You know, anything other than its real uh, religious experience. But I actually think that now, uh, these days, uh, religious history is, is really in pretty good shape in the, in the academy even, and even among people. I mean, I have friends in, in the business who are, I know, are, are secular or even atheists themselves. Uh, but somehow uh, they know, maybe it's because of what they see going on in the, in the news and so forth, that that uh, religion is important. Uh, religion can't just be reduced to uh, you know some kind of economic motivation or class interests or something like that. And so I think that we've seen a kind of revitalization of the study of religious history, I mean, even in the kind of secular academy. Uh, there was a study that came out from the American Historical Association in the past year that said that now the most common uh, subdiscipline identified among professional historians in America is religion. Uh, it's above politics or uh, economics or culture or anything like that, 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 that. So lots and lots of dissertation students are covering it. So I think it's exciting. But I think it r- remains to be seen as it's a constant struggle to know how uh, believing historians talk about uh, religious uh, history um, in, in the secular uh, academy and, and to talk about it in a way that's accessible both to secular people uh, and to believers. And I think my doctoral advisor, George Marsden, I think was one of the real pioneers on knowing how to do this, to write really uh, top-quality history uh, 
uh, but from a Christian point of view, and that's something that I'm trying to do as well. Well, and that's why we're having this conversation. And even in the course of, uh, of this conversation, two things came to my mind. And the first was a, a conversation that I had with a Canadian theologian uh, just a few years ago. We were talking about religion in Canada and in Canadian history of, and, and comparing that with religion and Christianity in particular in America and in American history. And this theologian just said, well, just remember that in Canada, we never had anything like a Great Awakening. We, we never had a single earth-shaking uh, religious event in the nation of uh, in Canada's history that, that really produced the, uh, the unquestionable reality uh, of Canada today. And, and then I look across and I see perhaps those uh, the, the, on the more secular left in the United States who do acknowledge that something happened in America uh, that we would call the Great Awakening, and they would see it not as something that was uh, positive and felicitous and, uh, and encouraging. It's something that nonetheless does explain things today. I think of someone like Richard Hofstadler and, and the anti-Americanism and the, anti, the anti-intellectual history in America, uh, that tradition, that, that some of them root it right back into the Great Awakening. Well, yeah, and I think that there's there are secular historians, too, that see that the Great Awakening has this kind of democratic impulse with, within it, too, that they may say, well, I don't get all this stuff about Christianity, but to the extent that the Great Awakening uh, feeds into some of the key principles of the revolution about all men are created equal and uh, that there's a new uh, appreciation for human equality coming out of the Great Awakening. I think in a, in a secular sense, there are even historians, uh, secular historians, who uh, appreciate the role of, of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, among other things, leads to uh, disestablishment of the state churches uh, in America and, and helps to foster real religious liberty in America. And so I think that there are ways to make the case to even uh, very secular people that 18th century uh, religion has some uh, some really uh, beneficial effects in, in American history. And to be honest, I think the more fair-minded have been there for some time. And uh, at, at, I think it is, as you said, something of a significant turn in the academy that there is now so much interest in these things. And uh, I yes. count that as a, as a positive intellectual and uh, academic development. Right. I do too. Historians, both those with and without religious commitments, tend to understand that you cannot talk about American history without a very heavy investment in America's religious history. And in particular, looking at those seminal events such as the Great Awakening of the mid-18th century. That's why this conversation is so important. It also reminds us that the discipline of history is an ongoing conversation. To talk about historical revisionism and even post-revisionism is to acknowledge that we are indeed constantly about the task of reinterpreting the past. We need to do so in ways that are most credible and most honest, understanding the limitations of historical investigation and also the absolute necessity of asking these questions over and over again. Thomas Kidd is also the author of the new book entitled Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. It's published by Basic Books, and quite frankly, it's one of those biographies that needs to be on your reading list right now. Professor Kidd, how did you come to write on Patrick Henry? Well, Patrick Henry shows up in my book on the Great Awakening and also my book, uh, God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, uh, because Henry was uh, was influenced deeply by the Great Awakening in 
uh, in Virginia. He was a teenager. He went to revival meetings uh, led by especially Samuel Davies, the great revivalist in Virginia. And even though we don't know for sure whether uh, Henry had a conversion experience uh, and he stayed an Anglican, a fairly traditional Anglican his, his whole life, he was deeply influenced by the evangelical movement, I think in his religious beliefs, but also in the kind of uh, speaker that he was. You know, I, people know, I think, in general, that Henry was uh, the most dynamic orator of, of the patriot movement. Uh, but they may not know that part of the reason is because it's, it seems clear to me that he uh, mimicked the style of the evangelical revivalists. And people at the time, especially his critics, would say, oh, that, that Henry, he just talks like a preacher. Uh, and they, they meant to uh, insult him by saying this. But I think it accounts uh, in, in large part for his power as a political orator. Uh, and so he, my interest in, in Henry is in him as a serious Christian among the major founders, uh, in his belief in the need for uh, public morality or what he would call uh, virtue. But I'm also interested in, in Henry's uh, politics, leader of the revolution. But then, uh, ironically, perhaps from our perspective, he became uh, one of the greatest opponents of the Constitution, an anti-federalist. So that, that accounts for my interest in Henry. I think when it comes to historical figures like this, most of us uh, who at least try to read and keep up with su such things have a have a knowledge of Patrick Henry that includes his revolutionary fervor, his, of course, oratory, his uh, his, his Christian commitments, uh, even his anti-federalism. But I don't know if anyone who has put that together in the kind of narrative you have with historical skill. But perhaps before I go further, I just want to ask you, why has Patrick Henry received perhaps less attention than some of the other major figures among the founding fathers? Well, in some ways, I think Patrick Henry is kind of the anti-Jefferson. Uh, and in fact, he and Thomas Jefferson uh, had a very bitter rivalry starting especially in the 1780s. Uh, I think Thomas Jefferson uh, detested Patrick Henry, in fact. and uh, After and, having and, admired him as a very young man. Yes, that's right. And, and I think that uh, they got sideways on the issue of, of religious liberty. In Virginia, uh, Henry proposes that you continue state support for the churches in, of Virginia in the 1780s, while uh, Jefferson and, and James Madison proposed the Virginia Bill for uh, establishing religious freedom. Uh, and so their uh, opponents on that issue, Madison and Henry are opponents on the Constitution. And so I think that there's a way in which some people may view uh, history as having kind of passed Henry by after the liberty or death speech, which is the one thing that if you know anything about Henry, you know the liberty or death speech. Uh, but I think past biographers even, even people who have written full-length books on, on Henry, have tended to say, well, he, he sort of lost his way in the 1780s when he got opposed to Madison and, and Jefferson. But I actually see a real consistency in, in uh, Henry's beliefs, both about religion and about uh, the Constitution, that I think is it helps us really to understand uh, the core of what the the Patriot movement was about. And I, and I think you know many of us would, when push comes to shove, disagree with him on religious liberty and on the Constitution. But I think his his example is so fascinating and instructive. Well, indeed, and as you point back to his speech in 1775 there at St. John's Church in Richmond, a speech to the Virginia Convention in which he he did declare, "Give me liberty or give me death." And most American schoolchildren who still we, we can hope learn something about American history. 
uh, we'll, we'll recall those words. But uh, as you say, few of them then draw the trajectory to the Patrick Henry who opposed the Constitution and was an ardent anti-federalist and for the very same reason. In, in other words, he felt that the Constitution was itself a great threat to American liberty, those liberties that had been very hard won in the Revolution. Well, that's right. And it's not hard to understand the logic there. Uh, Henry says, uh, we've just fought the revolution against a great consolidated political power, the British um, uh, monarchy and parliament. Uh, we uh, were subject to the risk of tyranny from a very powerful centralized government. Uh, and now here we are, 10 years later, seeking to put the same sort of government over ourselves, uh, consolidated government instead of a state-based government. And he said, this is, the, this is a, a threat to our liberty just the way that the British system was. And I think that there's a, a certain uh, consistency and logical clarity to that, that that's, it's, it's very easy to understand uh, why the Anti-Federalists, which was uh, very close to 50% of the people who participated in the ratification process, uh, why they felt that way. And the Anti-Federalism, uh, led in large part by Henry, was a very serious, uh, credible, uh, intellectual position to take. You know, I think some people hearing this might think then that uh, Patrick Henry was something of an anarchist, but of course he didn't want no government. He just wanted a very limited and very local government. Well, that's right. And he thought that if you disperse uh, political power as much as you can uh, among the states, among a, a very small national government, among localities, that that would best pr uh, protect uh, people's political liberties. And uh, he thought that if you make, to the extent that you make government more powerful, uh, the people are that much more at risk of losing their liberty. And uh, he, he said at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he said, uh, I thought that we were trying to create a republic that would defend people's liberties, not to create an empire. Um, and, you know, this is a, this is a, a pointed criticism uh, when you consider the context of uh, 1776 and why the Americans were declaring independence from the great British power. Well, and quite frankly, you can draw, a, again, a rather direct line, at least in terms of the issues being discussed, to contemporary American political context, where the question of empire and all the rest comes back again, and with some of the very same concerns. Well, that's right. I mean, it's so... Uh, oh, reading Patrick Henry's speeches at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, I mean, he says... This government will become a monster. The, this, there will come a day when this government will burst all bounds of size and scope and intrusion into people's uh, affairs and, and running all over the world doing whatever it wants. And I think at, at, at every point, uh, Henry, now it took a long time for us to get there, but I think, uh, you know, Henry is, is right. And, and it's, you know, it's a fool's game to say, what would the founders do today? Uh, but I'm I'm willing at least to risk that and and say that Henry would just uh, totally disapprove of uh, the massive uh, just just mind-boggling scope of the American government today. Well, it makes you wonder if you were to go back, for instance, to the debates that are in the Federalist Papers, what either side would think of the contemporary America, because there were those who warned. Uh, with some false and some very true observations over time, what America would become under this Constitution. And then there were the, the Federalists who pledged that some of the things that very actually quickly did happen would never happen. And, and so it would be fascinating to be able to have a conversation with these principles. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, that the best we can do is the kind of history that you have so marvelously done, first of all, uh, in your book on the revolution, and uh, I want uh, folks to know about that. The title of the book is God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, and that by Basic Books.
And then the biography of Patrick Henry, also by Basic, just out, First Among Patriots. There are two questions about Patrick Henry that I want to direct to you, uh, Professor Kidd. And the first of them has to do with Patrick Henry, not just in terms of the power of his oratory, not just in terms of his revolutionary fervor, uh, not even just in terms of his Christian commitments, the very deep, passionate Christian commitments, but, but how did he understand the role of virtue as, as very necessary to a Republican government and the people who, who would be able to, uh, to conduct themselves according to such a government? Well, the founders, uh, and Henry was one of the leaders on this, they talked uh, routinely about the need for public virtue. And, and you know, that's a, that's a term that we would probably use words like morality or ethics. Public spiritedness is another one that they would talk about. They saw that as absolutely indispensable to the survival of the republic, uh, that, that if you are going to have a system in which the people are sovereign, then the people have to be willing to look out for the public good uh, and be committed to uh, morality and, and ethics, or that the republic would eventually descend into chaos and probably set the stage for the rise of an autocrat or a tyrant to control the people. Uh, this was a standard belief among people like Henry, Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington, uh, and, and very common among the, the patriot movement. And I think that you know, when you when we hear those things today, secular critics would would think, well, you know, you're just talking about these, you know, hot button moral issues today, like you know, homosexuality or, or uh, abortion or something like that. And I I always point people to what has just happened uh, in the financial meltdown that we've had, uh, where there's uh, you know massive malfeasance going on in the financial sector. Uh, of you know these credit default swaps and and bogus mortgages and so forth that are being sold for uh, out of a spirit of greed, not public spiritedness, and that that is largely to blame uh, for the economic meltdown. And I think uh, most Americans would agree that there's a perfect incident, instance that when you get widespread lack of public virtue, it's bad for the republic. The other question I wanted to ask you is really going back not only to the American Revolution, but to the period you cover in your first book, The Protestant Interest. Uh, you argue in Protestant Interest that the Protestants in America during this period after the Glorious Revolution, but before the American Revolution, saw the specter perhaps of Roman Catholicism in, in terms of, uh, of, of the future of, of, the of the colonies, of colonial religion, uh, and of the new nation, uh, or at least uh, during the period you write there the, of, of the Protestant interest during during the colonial period. But then if you fast forward to your biography of Patrick Henry and into your work in the American Revolution, you make clear that there were a good many uh, among the founding fathers and, and mothers, for that matter, who were very concerned about deistical religion, in particular uh, the kind of deism rep represented by France uh, in uh, the post-revolutionary period and uh, perhaps in the United States represented by no one uh, more publicly than Thomas Jefferson. Can can you draw a line of those concerns? Sure. I mean, in the colonial period, there there were these great imperial wars, and the and the memory of the Reformation was was very very strong. Wars of religion in Europe, and the the Protestant colonists were constantly uh, afraid of Catholic conquest, and and it had happened uh, in France, where the Protestant movement was was destroyed violently. Uh, by, by the French monarchy in the, 16, in the 1680s, and they were always afraid that this would happen here. And that fear continues right on to, into the, the American Revolution. I mean, uh, George Washington, as the commander of the American army, has to put down uh, a Pope's Day celebration, which is actually November 5th, uh, 
and and you know he said we're not going to have uh, these these burning of the pope and effigy and so forth in the army because we need to have an alliance with the French uh, and and so you can't be doing these kind of things these anti-Catholic displays. But as time went on, uh, anti-Catholicism remains. But in the seventeen in the seventeen eighties and nineties, I think it is challenged and, and in some ways replaced for people like Henry uh, by a fear of uh, deism. And Henry believed, and, and many other American patriots believed, that uh, if you turn away from traditional Christianity, that there will be no uh, principles or spiritual power for the kind of virtue uh, that the Republic needed. And so in the 1790s, uh, Henry becomes uh, very vocal in his attacks on uh, deism, on the deism of the French Revolution and of Tom Paine. Uh, in particular, and he sees this now as probably the greatest uh, spiritual cultural threat uh, to the American Republic. Uh, Paine is very popular as a deistic writer in the 1790s, and Henry begins to, in the, the last year of his life turns to an appeal to traditional Christianity to counter that deistic threat. Now, does that also explain why uh, Patrick Henry was so concerned about the disestablishment of, of the church in the colonies, that uh, indeed this kind of virtue and this kind of Christian culture and civilization required an established church? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he and he's not alone in this belief. George Washington believed uh, that we should continue state support for churches. John Adams believed that. And again, the logic, I think, is quite simple. If religion is the greatest source of virtue in the republic, and if virtue is indispensable to the life of the republic, then the government should support religion. Uh, and, and we should remember, too, that the churches are a source of education, a source of public uh, welfare. At the time, uh, you know, in the absence of a welfare state, the churches were really uh, the key agencies for that. And so uh, if you need to have virtue in the republic, Henry believed in it, then the churches deserved uh, government support. Uh, Madison and Jefferson argued that if you get the government out of the business of supporting one denomination in particular, that religion will actually end up being stronger. And I, and I think uh, the facts on the ground, especially the advent of the Second Great Awakening in the immediate aftermath of disestablishment, uh, to me, tend to prove Madison and Jefferson right on that question. Well, it just goes to show that sometimes you can have the right concern, but uh, but have the wrong prescription for how to serve that concern. And I, I certainly right. think that uh, Patrick Henry had very good instincts when it came to the necessity of, of very clear commitments to virtue, and, and not only public virtue, but as, as he also was concerned for uh, no small amount of private virtue uh, among the That's citizens. Right. Uh, I think he was right to tie that to uh, the, the, uh, the restraining and constraining and culture-shaping power of Christianity— but uh, perhaps as awkward as it is to say, I think I have to go with Jefferson on the actual policy that, that best ensures that outcome. That's right. That's right. And, and especially for Baptists and Methodists, uh, disestablishment was absolutely essential. So they go from being tiny denominations in the era of the Revolution to the largest Protestant denominations at the time of the Civil War, and I think that has a lot to do with disestablishing the state churches. And just looking at it even pragmatically, if you go back and, and, and you look at established religion and the established churches in the respective colonies that had them, we have to remember that that meant in some cases that uh, other ministers were committing an illegal act in preaching the gospel. And, uh, and at the very least, there were privileges given 
uh, to one church that were not given to others. So, you know, we, we can look back sometimes a bit sloppily, I think, at, uh, at this era, as uh, some contemporary Christians maybe want to do without recognizing that uh, the liberties we now know were hard won and hard fought, not only during the Revolution, but for quite a while thereafter. Well, that's right. And, and the Baptists in particular had experienced terrible persecution. Uh, even up to the eve of the Revolution, there were Baptist preachers who were in jail in Virginia uh, for illegal preaching. And, uh, you know, Baptists obviously were terribly concerned about this, but Madison himself, I think, learns the principles of religious liberty from watching the persecution of the Baptists. And so if we wonder why evangelicals, and Baptists in particular, are driving the move for disestablishment in the revolutionary period, it's because of their memory of being persecuted by the state church and the authorities backing them. I have two final questions for you, and the first has to do with the Christian intellectual responsibility to come to terms with history. Uh, just ask you to speak to that. You are uh, an historian. You are also a believer. You're teaching in a research university. You're, you're published by uh, very prestigious American academic presses. Speaking to evangelicals, uh, some within and many without academia, what is our Christian intellectual responsibility when it comes to the understanding of history? Well, I think that history helps us to uh, certainly get better light on current challenges through our conversation today. We've been saying, doesn't this have immediate relevance to issues that we're struggling with today, both in the church and in politics? And I think that uh, observing the lessons of history help to give us uh, a sense of the accumulated wisdom of the past, uh, the great uh, uh, saints and, and heroes of the past, I mean, I'm, I'm still one who believes in uh, historical heroes, that we can have people in the past that we admire as exemplars of, of virtue and integrity, uh, wisdom, uh, intelligence on, on all kinds of issues relevant to uh, Christians. And so I think that, uh, you, know, you know, to the extent that we don't know about those heroes, people like uh, Jonathan Edwards, people like uh, Patrick Henry, I think that uh, we're we're uh, missing out uh, as part of our Christian intellectual and historical uh, heritage, and so I think that in in an age of you know infinite uh, distraction and and novelty and sensationalism, I certainly think it's worth taking a look at at our uh, past as as Christians and learning uh, the lessons that are available to us there. Lastly, I think I can draw a line. We've been speaking about drawing lines. Uh, I think I can draw one from your first book, The Protestant Interest, uh, to Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, your latest book. And I just have to ask you, where does the line go from here? What are your current research interests? And uh, I realize that uh, it's, it may be a lot to ask you an author who is just celebrating the release of his newest book. But I think I know you well enough from conversation and from reading your material to know you're already working on something else. What would that be? I am. I am. I, I'm working on a biography of George Whitfield, the great uh, revivalist, 18th century, and key revivalist of the Great Awakening. Uh, and I'm, I am going to do that with uh, Yale University Press. You know, Whitfield's uh, 300th birthday is in 2014. And uh, so we're, we're going to time the release of this biography for, for Whitfield's 300th birthday. Well, I will look forward to that. And in the meantime, let me express a sincere word of thanks uh, for all that you have contributed to our discussion, not only in this, uh, this conversation, but in your many books. It'll be a privilege to talk with you once again once that new book comes out. Thank you very much. And thus, the conversation is never just about an individual. 
even an individual such as Patrick Henry. The subject of the biography by Thomas S. Kidd just published as Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. Now, when it comes to Patrick Henry, Thomas Kidd has done what he's done on other subject areas. He has begun a conversation. It's a conversation that will be fascinating to follow in the months and years ahead. This conversation with Professor Thomas S. Kidd of Baylor University reminds us of the importance of history, just in terms of our contemporary self-understanding. We are narrative beings. It is impossible to describe ourselves without beginning to tell a story about when we were born and where and why it matters and where we went to school and who we married. These are all parts of our story. And if it's true for us as individuals, it is also true for America as a nation. And if it's true for America as a nation, it's also true for American Christians, and especially perhaps for this conversation in terms of American evangelicals and our own self-understanding. The narrative of evangelical history, which is just hand-in-hand with the narrative of evangelical self-definition, goes right back to the Great Awakening. It goes back further, of course, but it is impossible for us to talk about contemporary evangelicalism and the issues we face in this generation without seeing the parallels to those very early conversations that took place in the high energy of the Great Awakening and in the other very important events that followed. This conversation with Professor Kidd reminds us that we have to go back again and again But even as historians, both secular and those with religious commitments, go back and review these issues, go back over the same historical terrain over and over again and ask these questions, it is especially important that those with Christian commitments go back and ask the questions that are not only important for our understanding of history, but for our understanding of ourselves and of our understanding of evangelical Christianity, its convictions, and its mission. We look at the shape of many contemporary controversies, controversies over such things as creeds and confessions and theological accountability, conversations and controversies over enthusiasms and uh, certain aspects of religious experience. And you recognize that many of the headlines that would be very much, well, the fodder for everyday press and conversation among evangelicals today are the very issues that frame the debates going back to the mid-18th century. We cannot understand ourselves without asking the questions about from whence we've come. And that is not an easy question. Another thing a conversation with an historian like Thomas Kidd reminds us of is that history just doesn't come to us easily. It requires a great deal of work. That's why we need academic historians who are doing the kind of work that Professor Kidd is doing and are engaged in the kind of conversation that we also get to join. You look at the contributions of historians to our understanding of the Great Awakening just over the last half century. And in particular, you look back to the historical investigations undertaken by many evangelical historians in terms not only of this period, but of the periods that followed. And you recognize that we now have the privilege of having a conversation that is much better informed than that was understood by previous generations of evangelicals just over the last century or so. We, as evangelical Christians, need to encourage the development of a genuine historical conversation, an authentic academic historical conversation in the academy. We need to be thankful for even those secular historians who are directing their attention to these issues that are of such importance to us. We need to continue the conversation about the obligations of a believing historian who understands these things not only in terms of historical progress and uh, historical fact and historical interpretation, but also in terms of its meaning, the meaning of these things for our Christian faith and pilgrimage and discipleship. One of the things that I hope comes out of a conversation like this is an increased interest, perhaps an interest sparked even in the particular era of Professor Kidd's historical investigation, and to go and enter the conversation by getting some of these books and reading them for yourself and thinking through these issues on your own.
Before signing off, I want to invite you to start making your plans to be here at Southern Seminary for our annual Give Me an Answer conference for college students. The event will be held in 2012 on February the 17th and the 18th. The theme of the conference is radical. Join me along with David Platt, Kevin DeYoung, and Russell Moore as we consider how the gospel of Jesus Christ lays claim upon our lives. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.